0: This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. I can't help myself really. I it's Advent, basically. We're almost at Advent, and we should really begin to think about what Advent means as we prepare for Christmas. And one of the joys of being Catholic is that we're still celebrating Christmas long after the world has stopped. One of the peculiar things is that the world has its own kind of Advent, which they call the Christmas season, where we prepare in a material way for Christmas. It's the weirdest thing when you spend any time thinking about it. But here today, I'm going to bring to you something to really maybe plant our minds in this reflection that we should be doing as we prepare for the, the nativity of our blessed Lord. And it comes from G.K. Chesterton, and it's an excerpt from his classic work, Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy here, not in the sense of Like Eastern Orthodoxy, but the term just meaning right worship and right belief. So here is his section called A Magical Universe. All the towering materialism which dominates the modern mind rests ultimately upon one assumption, a false assumption. It is supposed that if a thing goes on repeating itself, it is probably dead, a piece of clockwork. People feel that if the universe was personal, it would vary. If the sun were alive, it would dance. This is a fallacy even in relation to known fact, for the variation in human affairs is generally brought into them, not by life, but by death, by the dying down or the breaking off of their strength or desire. A man varies his movements because of some slight element of failure or fatigue. He gets into an omnibus because he is tired of walking, or he walks because he is tired of sitting still. But if his life and joy were so gigantic that he never tired of going to Islington, he might go to Islington as regularly as the Thames goes to Sheerness. The very speed and ecstasy of his life would have the stillness of death. The sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning, but the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. Now, to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children, when they find some game or joke that they really specially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly expired. For grown-up, people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. Heaven may encore the bird who laid an egg if the human being conceives and brings forth a human child instead of bringing forth a fish or a bat or a griffin the reason may not be that we are fixed in an animal fate without life or purpose it may be that our little tragedy has touched the gods that they admire it from their starry galleries at the end of every human drama man is called again and again before the curtain repetition may go on for millions of years by mere choice and at any incident may stop Man may stand on earth generation after generation, and yet each birth be his positively last experience. This was my conviction, made by the shock of my childish emotions, meeting the modern creed in mid-career. I had always vaguely felt facts to be miracles in the sense that they are wonderful. Now I began to think of them miracles in the stricter sense that they were willful. I mean that they were, or might be, repeated exercise of some will. In short, I had always believed that the world involved magic. Now I thought perhaps it involved a magician. In this point, a profound emotion always present and subconscious. That this world of ours has some purpose. And if there is a purpose, there is a person. I'd always felt life first as a story. And if there is a story, there is a storyteller. But modern thought also hit my second human tradition. It went against the fairy feeling about strict limits and conditions. The one thing it loved to talk about was expansion and largeness. Herbert Spencer would have been greatly annoyed if anyone had called him an imperialist, and therefore it is highly regrettable that nobody did. But he was an imperialist of the lowest type. He popularized this contemptible notion that the size of the solar system ought to overawe the spiritual dogma of man. Why should a man surrender his dignity to the solar system any more than to a whale? If a mere size proves that man is not the image of God, then a whale may be the image of God. A somewhat formless image one might call an impressionist portrait it is quite futile to argue that man is small compared to the cosmos, for man was always small compared to the nearest tree. Stories of magic alone can express my sense that life is not only a pleasure, but a kind of eccentric privilege. I may express this other feeling of cosmic coziness by allusion to another book always read in boyhood. Robinson Crusoe, which I read about this time and which owes its eternal vivacity to the fact that it celebrates the poetry of limits, nay even the wild romance of prudence. Crusoe is a man on a small boat with few comforts just snatched from the sea. The best thing in the book is simply the list of things saved from the wreck. The greatest of poems is an inventory. Every kitchen tool becomes ideal because Crusoe happened to have dropped into the sea. It is a good exercise in empty or ugly hours of the day to look at anything—the coal scuttle or the bookcase—and think how happy one could to have been brought out of the sinking ship on the solitary island. The trees and planets seemed like things saved from a wreck, and when I saw the Matterhorn, I was glad that it had not been overlooked in the confusion. I felt economical about the stars as if they were sapphired—they're so-called in Milton's Eden. I hoarded the hills. For the universe is a single jewel, and while it is a natural cant to talk of a jewel as peerless and priceless— of this jewel it is literally true the cosmos is indeed without peer without price for there cannot be another one i felt in my bones first that this world does not explain itself it may be a miracle with a supernatural explanation maybe a conjuring trick with a natural explanation but the explanation of the conjuring trick if it is to satisfy me will have to be better than the natural explanations i have heard the thing is magic true or false second i came to feel as if magic must have a meaning Meaning must have some one to mean it. There was something personal in the world, as in a work of art. Whatever it meant, it meant violently. Third, I thought this purpose beautiful in its old design, in spite of its defects, such as dragons. Fourth, that the proper form of thanks, too, is some form of humility and restraint. We should thank God for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much of them. We owed also an obedience to whatever made us. And last and strangest, there had come in my mind a vague and vast impression that in some way all good was a remnant to be stored and held sacred out of some primordial ruin. Man had saved his good as Crusoe saved his goods. He had saved them from a wreck. All this I felt in the age gave me no encouragement to feel it, and all this time I had not even thought of Christian theology. That may sound like a very peculiar way of Chesterton describing his faith, but he's describing his own interior conversion, really. This based on wonderment. There are numerous ways people come to the faith. Some come through wonderment. Some come through beauty of art. Some come through the logic of the theology. Others come through the brilliance of some of the great minds or the personal piety of the believer. Chesterton, here alludes that he came because he pondered the order of things and he realized there had to be something behind it. And he found it wonderful and he described it in his own poetic way is a relay, his allusion to gods, by the way. It was not in a literal sense, it was poetic, as in almost everything else he said there. And our takeaway really should be, as we move toward into, as we get ready for Advent, is to remember who it is that we're waiting for, and our place in this. That we are preparing ourselves for the coming of our blessed Lord, and his nativity. And in every day in our life, regardless of the season of the year, we should be preparing for the coming of our Lord. Or, preparing for when we will find ourselves standing before him in our judgment. Christmas is almost upon us, but first we must go through the season of Advent, a season of preparation and penance, so that we may be ready to come into the presence of Christ the King. I hope you found this edifying, found this interesting and unusual. Chesterton is always unusual and hard for some to grasp. Let me know what you thought of that in the comments, please. And hit like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help So to sharing this on social media. that helps enormously, too. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.